There was a popular writer back in the mid-1800s by the name of Henry Manning. He worked within the Anglican Church, and eventually he became the Archbishop of Westminster. And as his responsibilities increased, he struggled with what he referred to as bouts of depression. He felt as though his life's work was unappreciated. He didn't believe that people enjoyed the books that he wrote. He said his faith was constantly under attack. So during one of those seasons of depression, he went into a bookstore to purchase a copy of a book he actually wrote entitled Faith in God. And he wanted to buy the book because he wanted to see what he wrote about faith when his faith was actually strong. So as he was waiting for the book to be sent out from the storeroom, he heard a man's voice call up from the basement and say, let the customer know that Manning's faith in God is all gone. And later he wrote in a journal entry, when he heard those words, two things popped into his mind. First, his faith in God was gone. But second, God's faith in him was not. What he did not realize during that season of his life is his books had become so popular that the different stores could not keep them on the shelves. From his perspective, an empty bookshelf was just one more reason to doubt God. From God's perspective, an empty bookshelf was a greater reason to believe. There's probably a little bit of manning in all of us. There are certain circumstances and times in life, and sometimes our, our hearts get caught up in emotions of what's going on. And many times it will cause us to either doubt God or doubt God's promises to us. And our Bibles are filled with promises that come directly from God. There's things that God says that sometimes in the moment it might be hard for us to fully grasp or hard for us to fully believe. He says things like, I will provide for your needs. But sometimes from our perspective, the finances continue to shrink and the bills continue to grow. You're trying to think, how can that actually be true? Or God says in his word, I will work all things together for good. Yet from our perspective, sometimes our bad situation just seems to keep getting worse. And you're saying, God, how can that be the case? Or God also says in his word, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet sometimes from our perspective, when the circumstances are bad enough, you never feel more alone than what you do in that moment. And all along the way, we try to do what is good and what is right and what is respectable and what is reverent. So we keep saying and verbalizing like, God, I trust you. God, I know you will provide. God, I know you will come through. But the longer things go between the need and a recognizable resolve, sometimes the more we find ourselves growing cautious and jaded and upset with God. And I found in my life, it might be the same in yours. It's rarely the fact that we doubt God's ability. We begin to doubt his willingness. We look in the word and we're like, God, I know you can. Like you've done it here. You, you've done it for friends of mine. You've done it for others. But we begin to doubt and say, but God, will, will you do that for me? Will you do that in this situation? What we find in our journey is that many times when doubt begins to creep in, we find ourselves going back and doubting every decision we made and second-guessing every decision we did not make. 
There was a time many times early in our journey with God when our faith was strong and maybe before some other circumstances came in that during those times God would say jump and we'd say how high. And then after you hit a couple of disappointments, God says jump and you're like, what for? Something we don't like to talk about as believers is that our faith takes a hit daily. There are challenges daily. And sometimes it seems like we're not a good Christian if you actually let somebody else know, my faith is struggling right now. I'm, I'm hurting. This is the situation. And mentally, I know God has not let me down. But emotionally, in this moment, I feel overwhelmed. There's something about being honest with others and with God when doubt and unbelief begins to sink in. Faith struggles are far more prevalent than what we might imagine. So what do you do when you recognize that your faith is being replaced with doubt? What do you do when you recognize that, I don't know if I can trust my view of God right now. I don't, I don't know if I can trust my ability to hear from God right now. I don't know if I trust my ability to rightly discern his word. What do you do when your faith keeps taking a hit? Is there a way to restore the intensity of a person's faith after the circumstances of life just keep chipping away at its foundation. This morning, we are going to finish our Issues of the Heart series. And we're talking about doubt and unbelief. We're going to see why it is that our faith is constantly under attack. We're going to see some biblical steps that we can take in order to guard our hearts against unbelief. We're going to see steps in the word that help build our faith. And Lord willing, we're going to find a clear path for what it looks like to faithfully walk with God even when we are walking in uncertainty, even whenever those doubts begin to creep in. By the way, every bit of what I'm talking about as far as the answer, it's all found right here in the word of God. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today, Mark's Gospel, chapter number 6. I'm going to be in verses 1 through 6. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 6, 1 through 6. Before I read the text, let me say, this particular message, if you're talking about exposing why doubt and unbelief creeps in, I guarantee you there's going to be more spiritual attack that happens in this next 30 minutes than you're going to experience in a long time. You're going to have to fight for this moment to be able to say, God, keep me focused the enemy does not want you to know how it is he continues to creep in and sow seeds of doubt into your life. So we need to be on point with God and say, God, we need to meet with you right now. Let's go and read the text. Here's what it says. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus went out from there, and he came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as those performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Let's pray. 
Father, protect our mind as we're about to go further into this text. May your spirit guide us in a way that only you can do. And Lord, may you live the truths of your word through each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Unbelief begins to build in our hearts much like a clogged drain. That is, every situation where we don't understand God, every passage in Scripture that doesn't seem to make sense, every time we have prayed specifically for something and it seems like God has been silent, there's a little bit more doubting debris that gets caught in our hearts. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves over the course of time becoming cynical and doubtful and callous towards the activity of God. You begin to know that that's happening more and more when it spills over not only in your life, but you hear of what God is doing in somebody else's and you're like, I don't know if that's true. And what just happened then is because you've been hurt and doubt has been creeping in, you now begin to doubt God's activity that's all around you as well. So I want us to take a few moments and let's settle into the context of what's happening over in Mark's gospel, chapter number six. In the two preceding chapters, chapters four and five, Jesus has addressed the condition of the human heart and the flow of God's activity. In those chapters, he has miraculously calmed the seas and he delivered a demon-possessed man, he has healed a diseased woman, and he has also raised a dead girl. The crowds are gathering, people are excited. He is riding this wave of popular support and he goes and he enters back into his hometown of Nazareth. And whenever he arrives, he is invited to teach at the local synagogue. That was a custom. That was an honor that was very, very much a part of the culture at that time. Whenever a traveling rabbi or a great teacher would come through, they were given this opportunity to speak within the synagogue. So according to verse number two, it tells us that Jesus' message did not disappoint. It says, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished. And they're eating it up. It's like he's bringing the heat, and they're like, wow, that is incredible. They are astonished by what they are hearing. But listen, the further you get into the section, the more you find out that the doubts are beginning to creep in. What he said was amazing. Who he was seemed ordinary. They knew him. This is his hometown. In fact, you know how much they know him because they're calling out his brothers and his parents and they're saying, isn't that the carpenter? Like, they're trying to figure it out. I mean, you can almost hear the conversations from one person to the next. They're like, you know who that is, don't you? That's little Jesus. You, you know him. You remember him. He grew up at the corner of Love and Shalom Boulevard. That's little Jesus. You, you know, hey, his parents... That's Joseph and Mary. Joseph was the one who added the addition onto the back of your house. That's little Jesus. You remember him, straight A's in school. All the parents wanted him to be their kid because he never got into trouble. That's little Jesus you're talking about. You can can watch their wheels turning as they're, they're like, I'm astonished by what I hear. But we know this guy. See, here's the issue that's happening in there. The struggle that they were having led to an offense, and the offense leads to unbelief. In verse 3, it says, and they took offense at him. Pause there for just a moment. Did you know nothing in the text says he said anything offensive? Nothing in the text says he did something offensive. Literally, they're astonished at his teaching. Then they're like, 
but that's, that's Jesus. That, that's the brother of all of these. Like, there's nothing in there to show that they should be offended, and yet they're offended with him. And that offense leads into unbelief based on verse number six. There's only two times in the New Testament that Jesus marveled or wondered at anything. Both times it's about faith. Over in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, he marveled at the abundant faith of the Roman centurion. And now over in Mark chapter 6, he marveled with the lack of faith of his own people. Both times it's an issue of faith. So what's the actual problem here? Why, why did they take offense at Jesus? Why did they refuse to believe him? Here's the answer, and the same one holds true for each of us today. His actions did not match their preconceived beliefs. That's why they took an offense. We have this view of God. Each of us have an, our own personal view of God, our own personal view of Jesus. Lord willing, it's based upon what we find in Scripture. But even if it's based on what you find in Scripture, here's what you just know about human, human understanding, human condition. That is, we gravitate to the pieces that are the most meaningful to us. So, for example, when we look at Jesus' character as it's revealed through the New Testament, we might gravitate to those parts like Jesus is loving, he is caring, he is helpful, he is gracious, he's a miracle worker. Like, you remember that time in your life when you're praying and he came through at just the right moment. You're like, that's my Jesus who did that for me. There's the miracle work inside. He's merciful, he's kind, he's sacrificial. There is a a piece in our mind that we connect with the positive, affirming parts of Jesus' character because those are the parts that mean the most to us. But when God acts outside of our preconceived view, if he does something that we think is less than what Jesus would do, it will rock our faith. So, for example, what do you do with the text when Jesus calls the woman a dog? That doesn't sound very Jesus-like. What do you do when Jesus is flipping the tables at the temple? You're like, well, Jesus, you should hold your anger back a little bit more. But what do you do when he calls the religious crowd names? And by the way, he called them some names. You hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. Like That doesn't sound like the same Jesus we see at other points within Scripture. When he does something that we consider to be insensitive or unconcerned or unloving or unhelpful or seemingly contradictory, there is a crisis of faith that begins to happen in our minds and doubt begins to slip in. When what Jesus does does not match who we believe him to be. Doubt is often the result. When that happens over and over, the doubt leads us down a path towards unbelief. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pinpoint several steps in this text that lead a person from astonished with God to doubt to unbelief. And my prayer in this is if we see the steps that God would use that in order to help guard our hearts, to help us recognize, hey, I'm at step number two right now. I need to repent and go back before God. I'm praying that God's going to use us to help prepare us so that we don't move towards doubt and unbelief, but rather moment by moment we recognize the enemy's attack and we're like, God, I need you. I need you. I submit to you. So what is the first step that we see? Unbelief begins in the tone of our questions. Begins in the tone of our questions. 
There are some within Christianity who believe it is wrong to ever question God or ask God deep questions. And they would say things like, if you're going through trials, don't ever ask why. If you're going through difficult circumstances and you're confused, don't ask God for details. Just keep your questions to yourself. Keep your head down. Keep plowing through. And somewhere on the other side of this, it's going to make sense. Now, I do understand the fact if somebody is coming in a demanding, prideful, arrogant type of a way that is disrespectful, I, I definitely see their sin in that. But asking God questions is not the same as questioning God's authority. There's a couple of things that we need to clear up on misconceptions. Uh, the first is you don't have to verbalize your question for God to know you have one. God already knows what's happening in your heart. He knows what you're struggling to understand. He knows when you're searching for answers. Second one is real relationships require real conversations. So some of our greatest times of spiritual growth, they come when the circumstances are so overwhelming, it gets us past all of the pretenses of the relationship, and it drops us back to our knees before God. We're like, God, I just got issues. I, I don't understand Questions cause us to look for specific answers to prayer. Questions sometimes cause us to dig into the deeper, harder truths of Scripture that we've been unwilling to look at otherwise. We need those. And number three, the Bible is filled with heroes of the faith who ask God questions. People like Moses and Abraham and Sarah and Gideon and Job, Jonah, Solomon, David, are just a handful of those who ask God questions like, why, who, when and those are some of the heroes of the faith for us the point is god is big enough to handle our questions bring your questions to god oh but listen be careful in the tone of the questions in the same way that an earthly parent is not upset when their child comes seeking to understand our heavenly father is not upset when his children come with a humble heart, just saying, God, I don't know. I, I, need, I need you to meet with me. God's not offended by those things. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 5, it even tells us when you don't know what to do and you're searching for wisdom and you're trying to figure out the moment, the scriptures tell us, go and ask God for wisdom and he will give it abundantly and without reproach. So I want you to look for just a moment at the questions that the people of Nazareth were bringing up. And, and these I don't think are in your notes, but they're found in verses 2 and 3. And these, these are things that they're questioning about Jesus. They, first, they questioned his wisdom. They said, like, where did this man get these things and what wisdom is given to him? They're like, where did this come from? They questioned Jesus' ability and such miracles as performed by his hands. Like, how did Jesus get this wisdom, and how is he able to do what it is that he's doing? They questioned Jesus' credentials. They said, is this not the carpenter? They're like, carpenters don't raise people from the dead. Carpenters don't teach like what this guy's teaching. Like that. They're, they're questioning his credentials, and then they questioned his credibility. How can he be the son of God when we know that he's the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They're looking at this and their questions 
smack of jealousy and pride and a refusal to believe what they could not understand. Here's my point. It's not wrong to ask God questions, but we have to be careful with our tone. When our tone goes from God, help me to understand, to God, I demand you give me an answer. I believe you have done. When our tone shifts is often where we find ourselves in a place where God teaches other lessons at that point. Unbelief begins in the tone of our questions. Unbelief continues in the offenses we take. If we're not careful with the tone of our questions, our prideful flesh will take offense at God. I cannot tell you how many times in my own life I have argued with God, I have ranted and raved, I have doubted, I've wrestled, I have been completely convinced in that moment that God had somehow done me wrong until I got alone with God in his word. And sometimes it's one verse and all of a sudden there is an understanding there that humbles me to my core. And I realize he didn't do me wrong. He wasn't withholding something that I needed. Many times there's another lesson that he is teaching within the moment. But here's the thing. Before that moment, I was convinced that he had done something to offend me, and I was upset with God. The same sequence is found in this text. After the tone took the wrong turn and moves towards those questions, they ended up in the wrong place. The end of verse 3 says, and they took offense at him. I need you to hear this next part because this is worth every bit of you getting up on a, a somewhat chilly Sunday morning in order to come to church. The word offense is from a Greek word called scandalon. A scandalon is basically, it, it speaks of stumbling over something, a trap for something. It was to catch something in a snare. A scandalon was a type of trap that was set by hunters. They would dig a deep pit in the ground, and at the bottom they would put sharp stakes going upwards, and then they had to put across the top different branches and twigs and leaves in order to kind of camouflage the trap, and they would put bait in the center of it. And whenever that animal came along and took the bait, it would fall in the trap, and it would impale itself on the stakes underneath. That's a scandalon. The imagery in this text is huge. During those moments, those prideful moments of questioning and, and, and unrestrained just talking before God, during those moments where we doubt and question everything about him, it is a spiritual trap that is being set before us. And if we're not careful, we take the bait of pride. I'm better than this. Or we take the bait of entitlement. God owes me something. Or we take the bait of relying on our own understanding. I know better than God what I need in this moment. And we fall into the enemy's trap. Now one of the greatest examples of this that we find in the New Testament was actually between a conversation with John the Baptist and Jesus found over in Matthew chapter 11. You remember John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. His mission was to prepare the way to preach repentance and declare Messiah had come. And while doing that, he finds himself put in prison. 
And as he's in prison, he hears that Jesus is still moving forward and he's still preaching and he's still healing and he's still doing ministry and all of that is absolutely wonderful. Or at least it should have been for John. If John's job was to prepare the way for Messiah and Messiah is doing the ministry before, that should be a good thing. We don't know what happens in that moment right there, but all we know is that John the Baptist gets upset with Jesus. He's over in prison. He's singing swing low, sweet chariot. And somewhere along the way, Jesus is not checking in on him. We don't know where the offense comes from. We don't know whether or not he's upset because there's nothing in the text that says Jesus dropped by the prison to check on John the Baptist. There's nothing in the text that says that he is petitioning the authorities for John's release. All we know is somewhere along the way, John the Baptist picks up an offense. So here's what happens. He basically goes to one of his disciples and he tells his disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Here's the thing. He knew who Jesus was. He was at the baptism when the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Is John the Baptist who looked at Jesus across the way and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was and he sends his disciples to Jesus in prison and saying, basically, hey, save us some time here. Are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus' reply is glorious. He says, go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. I, I got to stop there for a moment. Did you notice that the preaching of the gospel is listed next to raising the dead? And the ears hearing and the eyes seeing. When the gospel is being proclaimed, it's miraculous. And then here's what he says. And the gospel's preached to them. And then he ends it. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It's the same word, scandalon. It's like Jesus saying, John, I know you're upset. I know you don't understand what's going on. But John, I want to caution you before you right now is a trap that is being set by the enemy. And if you don't watch out, you're about to fall into the trap. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When we go through hard times, if God doesn't seem to answer the way we think he should, if we get offended with God, it is so easy for us to fall into that trap. It is a trap that is being set by the enemy. You may feel in this moment 100% that you are right and God has let you down. I would encourage you to read Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust him. Our understanding is based on a limited perspective, limited knowledge, flawed wisdom, many times even with sinful and selfish desires. If we're not careful, we will take the bait of entitlement and it will result in a, an offense. There is a trap 
The enemy is setting traps before the people of God. He is going to lie to God's people and say, God doesn't care about you. God is not listening to you. You're going to have to go out and handle this yourself. That is a lie from the enemy. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Unbelief begins in the tone of our questions. Unbelief continues in the offenses we take. Unbelief shows in the honor we withhold. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Here's what that statement means. Sometimes it's easier to honor someone that you don't know everything about. You can't unknow what you know. From a pastoral perspective, I probably get this passage more than a lot because he's preaching in his hometown of Nazareth and it's that crowd that gets upset and starts bringing a rebuke to him and this is the context that he gives that particular line. And just, just know, it's easier for me to preach in an area where the people in the congregation did not grow up with me and know everything about my life. Okay, so I'll give you an example. I've preached at a lot of churches in the South and doing that means that a lot of times friends and family that I grew up with would come in order to support me and they're excited that I'm there. And let's just say that is both wonderful and excruciating all at the same time. Because when they show up, I'm not Pastor Paul, I'm little Paul who loved frogs and firecrackers in football. I'm little Paul that they change my diapers in the church nursery. And they will tell you they changed your diapers in the church nursery. And you're like, thanks. I'm grateful. I mean, how do you preach right after that? I don't know. So they, they come and they, they, got, they got their cameras and they got a half a pound cake and they got every story from my childhood that I would rather be left in the past. And let me just tell you, it is hard to preach after your aunt says, Paul, just go up in the pulpit and hold your Bible in front of you so I can get your picture before the service. If I had any coolness points whatsoever, they were lost in that moment right there. What do you do? You, you stand up in the pulpit and you're like, that's all you can do in that moment. I get what he's saying. Like a, a prophet is not without honor except when he goes home and when it's the people he grew up with and it's the hometown and it's the, I get what he's describing here. So basically Jesus is in a situation where his hometown crowd wasn't showing up for support it's not like, there's Jesus, we support him. Instead it was, we know Jesus, and there's no way he is who he claims to be. They were offended, and they took that offense against him. When that happens, we withhold the honor that is due God's name. When we think we're right, when we're offended with what God did or what God did not do, we withhold the honor he deserves. We speak critically when we should remain silent. We demand more when he owes us nothing to begin with. We withhold honor, which leads to greater areas of foolishness. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we no longer fear him and honor him and respect him and stand in awe of who he is, we make more poor choices right after that. Here's number four and we close. Unbelief culminates in the miracles we miss. 
It says, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Unbelief interferes with the full work of God. Now, the only way that verse can be true in light of God's sovereignty is that God chooses to do some miracles only in response to the faith of his people. When unbelief emerges, God simply chooses to wait. It is not that he is any less powerful. It is not that he is any less sovereign. It is not that he could not snap his finger and it be done in that moment. But it is by his choice that he chooses to wait to do miracles. There are times when God does perform certain miracles apart from the faith of his people. We can see some of those times as being the feeding of the thousands. We can also see it raising the widow's son of Nain. Both of those are not preceded by moments of faith that are specifically written out in Scripture. But so many of the miracles in the Bible are preceded by faith. In our text, it's easy to see the difference between the ministry that he was doing in Nazareth versus the ministry that he was doing along the Sea of Galilee. He goes from silencing storms, calming seas, casting out demons, healing the incurable, and raising the dead to laying his hands on a few sick people. His power was still 100% intact. His ability is completely there. But their unbelief limited what he was willing to do. So here's my thought. If God chooses to do some miracles only in response to the faith of his people, it is no wonder that our faith is constantly under attack. Faith is the vehicle of all spiritual growth. So Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Hebrews 10.38, the just will live by faith. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Romans 14.23, whatever is not of faith is sin. John 6.29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. The Christian life begins in faith. It is lived by faith. And even the work itself is about faith. Faith is central to the Christian life. So Satan's objective, a part of it in this, is to get us to abuse faith or to misuse faith or to give up on faith altogether. He wants us to live by our strength and to depend on our own understanding and to serve based on our own ability. If the enemy can stifle our faith, he can stop our progress. We need to bring those doubts. We need to bring those concerns We need to drop them right back before Jesus and say, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do with this, but I know I need to bring it to you. We need to be honest and humble with God. When doubt and unbelief begin to creep in, we need to see it as an attack of the enemy. There is a spiritual battle that is being waged around us at all all times. Doubt and unbelief are issues that flow out of a confused, a wounded and a prideful heart. One of the verses that I meditate upon each morning is Proverbs twenty-two nineteen that says, I am teaching you today, yes, you, so that you will trust in the Lord. I'm teaching you today. Every day you wake up, there is another opportunity to be taught. You don't have to go back 30 years to what God did in the past. He's got another lesson for you today. He said, I'm teaching you 
This is personal. I'm teaching you, yes, you. There's something that God is working into each of our hearts independently each day. And where is it leading to? So that you will trust in the Lord. He's moving us towards deeper and deeper areas of faith. So my question for you this morning is where is God teaching you to trust him? What promises are you struggling to hold on to today? What set of circumstances has God divinely and sovereignly allowed to come into your life that he is teaching some faith lessons that you're going to need to know the lesson, the need to walk in those truths for years down the road? As we close, just know this. Faith is not stepping out blindly on intuition. That is called presumption, and it'll cost you dearly. Faith is not jumping through every open door and telling people God told you to do it. That is recklessness at the least, and it's being a liar at the worst. Faith is not doing whatever you want and then justifying it by saying, well, God works all things together for good. Well, yes, he will make beauty out of ashes, but he will also teach us lessons in good judgment along the way. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's two elements in biblical faith, substance and evidence. So are you struggling today with God? Are you struggling to trust him in finances? Are you struggling to trust him in relationships? Have you been struggling to trust that he is who he says he is and you've been coming to church for a while? You just, you don't know, can I trust him? In your mind, you're thinking, when he answers all of my questions, then I'll know. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have questions, let me see your hands for just a moment. Here's what I want to do. You look around and you'll see this. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean God answers every question. It means that somewhere along the way, faith in Jesus became real to you in a personal way. There are certain things you need to know about the gospel before you enter relationship with Christ. But if you're waiting until you understand everything about the universe and everything about God and everything about life before you take that step of trusting him, you will never take that step of trusting him. But once you do take that step, according to Scripture, he gives greater and greater understanding along the way. It's not going to come overnight. Many times it comes in that exact set of circumstances you're running from right now. There's lessons that he's teaching in the moment. So where in your life right now is God saying, trust me? Don't let doubt and unbelief cause you to miss out on what God has for your life. And I ask you if you would to bow with me for a word of prayer. Just heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. This is the very end of our series and as I said in the very beginning when we were just about to read the text, you got to fight in this particular moment in order to stay focused on, on what it is the Spirit of God is leading to do in your life. And I say that for the sense that when people begin to recognize the lies of the enemy and where he's sowing in seeds of doubt and how it is that sometimes the tone of our questions, it leads to an offense and the offense leads to withholding honor and withholding honor, it leads to a person walking away from 
all of these pieces and unbelief settles in and you don't get to see God's activity. There's a reason why believers are constantly battling with faith. My prayer is that this would be a church where we can be honest with each other. We can be honest before God. That we can say, God, this is a struggle. We can share it with a Christian friend, a brother or sister in Christ. But that we also go back into his word and we say, God, you alone know how to speak life into my heart. So I don't know where you might be this morning. It might be that you are wrestling with the hardest thing you've ever faced in your life. Don't let the enemy sow doubt and unbelief in a way that would cause you to try to work through that apart from the presence of God. Others might be in the room and they're saying, I don't even know if I can trust God at all. I didn't grow up in church. I I don't know the Bible. I don't know the stories. All I know is I need help. I know that my life is not what I want it to be. I know that I'm not on a good path right now. I know that there's something missing. I cannot tell you what that is. I just know I need something. If that's where you're at today, bring that this morning and share that with one of our pastors in a moment. Share that heart before God in prayer. Let let the process begin. So I'm going to have a word of prayer There's going to be a song of invitation. And in the song of invitation, not only is the altar going to be open, there's going to be pastors and some of the pastor's wives, and there's going to be counselors that are here, both male and female. There's there's people that want to help. But we're going to have this song. It's called Oceans. And some of you might know it. You might be in a place right now that, that your response to this message is singing it with all of your heart before God. And others, you might have a response of, I just need to sit. I need to to process those lyrics because it's describing where I'm at. It's talking about this journey of faith and where it is that God moves us. My thing is just respond as the Spirit of God prompts you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, you alone know what each of us need. You alone know what is best. So, God, we ask you today to meet with us in a personal way. Lord, for those that their faith is just barely holding on today, God, may this morning be a day that they are encouraged in you and encouraged in Scripture. God, I pray for those who are looking for the next step. Would you show them what that is? God, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing? The altar is open.